Would you take your Bible and open it up to Revelation chapter 2, verse 18. Revelation 2, verse 18, as we continue this series in these first three chapters of the book of Revelation. When you think about the word tolerance, when you hear the word tolerance or tolerant, what comes to your mind? What do you think of? Do you consider yourself a tolerant person? Would you consider Christianity a tolerant religion? Now, some of you here this morning are probably saying, well, I'm very tolerant. I'm open-minded. I'm progressive. I believe that everyone has the right to believe what they want and to live like they want. There are others of you here this morning who are probably saying, well, I'm not that tolerant. I'm conservative. I believe the Bible, and, and I believe that everyone should live by certain standards. There are still others of you here this morning who are probably saying it all depends on what you mean. You see, tolerance has become a buzzword in America today. Tolerance is shaping public opinion. It is determining our national policies. The truth is, to many, tolerance has become the most important virtue in our society. And if you aren't tolerant, if you don't agree with, if you don't support and even embrace anything and everything, you're oftentimes considered bigoted, narrow-minded, or prejudiced. Now, here's how Webster defines the word tolerance. It says, tolerance is the allowable deviation from the standard. Sympathy or indulgence for beliefs and practices differing or conflicting with one's own. Now, unfortunately, tolerance in our day and age has come to mean much more than sympathy or indulgence. You see, it seems in our culture, we have taken tolerance a step further where tolerance has come to mean condoning, accepting, or even promoting those beliefs or those lifestyles. You see, we live in a day and age where it seems now that every belief, every lifestyle is equal in standing. Now, G.K. Chesterton, whether you agree with him or not, said this. He said, tolerance is a virtue of the man without convictions. Let me say that again. Tolerance is the virtue of a man without convictions. Now, whether you agree with that or not, you need to think through what he says because today... We are living in an age, we are living in a culture, we are living in a society where tolerance has become the most important word, the most important virtue. And because of that, we are living in a society where there are no absolutes, where it seems like anything and everything is relative. You see, tolerance, at least the way that our society has come to define it, means that, that everything must be embraced. Everything morally, everything politically, everything educationally, everything religiously must be embraced. It, it must be on equal standing. 
And the truth is, in our society today, the only thing that our society is intolerant of is when we are intolerant of certain things. And so if there are things that you are intolerant of, then our society would be intolerant of you. Several years ago, George Gallup did a poll that revealed that 67% of Americans say there's no such thing as absolute truth. In other words, right and wrong vary from situation to situation. Now, George Barna did another poll last year. And his findings were a little different. What George Barna discovered was 57% of adults say that knowing what is right or wrong is a matter of personal experience. In other words... 57% of us, almost 60% would say that, that when it comes to what is right, what is wrong, you and your experiences determine that. Now, when it comes to millennials, those who were born in the 80s to the early 2000s, 74% would hold to that. As a matter of fact, 74% of millennials agree with This statement, whatever is right for your life or works best for you is the only truth you can know. Now let me say that again. 74% of millennials, those born in the 80s to the early 2000s, say that whatever is right for your life, whatever works best for you, is the only truth you can know. In other words, there is no absolute truth. And that is where our view of tolerance has taken us. And what we need to understand today as the people of God is this. If we continue to reject absolutism, which is the belief in a fixed moral and spiritual standard, then we are headed for doom. We are headed for doom, first of all, as a church, And then second of all, as a nation. Here's what the Apostle Paul said happens when we reject the belief that there are absolute standards. In Romans chapter 1, this is what Paul said. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lust. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness. That's what happens when we reject an absolute standard. Now, that takes us to the seven churches that John wrote about in in Asia Minor. In his book, What Christ Thinks of the Church... John Stott said this. He he said, the book of Revelation is a message to the church living in the world, encouraging us to endure tribulation, hold fast to the truth, resist the blandishments of the devil, and obey the commands of God. And then he said, the reason is that the unchanging strategies of Satan are persecution, error, and sin. Now, here's what you and I need to understand. You see, the problems plaguing God's people today are the same that plagued the people in the Bible. 
The reason is our sinful nature hasn't changed. We are a sinful people and left to ourselves, we will follow our sinful will and when we do, we will experience trouble. Now as we look at Jesus' message to the church at Thyatira, what I want us to discover is what Jesus said about tolerance. And let me give you a little bit of background that will help us understand a little better Jesus' message. The city of Thyatira was not an important city. It was the smallest city that Jesus wrote to. And yet he wrote the longest letter to this church. Strategically, it was a military outpost. It was an outpost for the city of Pergamon. And as an outpost, it was destined to be destroyed over and over again. Commercially, it was known for its trade guilds. Trade guilds were kind of like unions today, but they were much more than unions. They were like unions that combined unions with fraternities or sororities. And they were known for all of their various trade guilds. There were carpenter guilds. There were cloth maker guilds. There were, there were dye maker guilds. There were all of these different guilds. And if you wanted to advance in a craft, if you wanted to advance in a trade, you needed to be a part of one of these guilds. It was a, a blue-collar town. Religiously, they had pagan worship, but, but it was not a great religious city like many of the other cities that we read about. In Acts chapter 16, we read about a woman from Thyatira. Her name was Lydia. She was in Philippi at the time, and the Apostle Paul shared the truth of the gospel with her, and, and the Bible says that her and her household came to faith in Jesus. Now, we don't know. But perhaps Lydia went back to Thyatira and she was one of the founding members of this church that was established here. We don't know, but we do know that Lydia was from this town. Now, now let's read what Jesus says together, beginning in verse 18. Uh, these are the words of Jesus. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, these are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love, your faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I've given her time to repent of her immorality, but, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely, unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teachings and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you. Only hold on to what you have until I come. To him who overcomes and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. 
He will dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I have received authority from my Father. I will also give him the morning star. He who has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, as you can see on your note sheet, if you've got your note sheet turned over, there are several things that we need to discover. First of all, we discover three truths about Jesus. Now, I want you to notice that in every single letter, Jesus begins with a description of himself. And the reason is the church is all about Jesus. The church has its start in Jesus. The church belongs to Jesus. The church begins with Jesus. Jesus sets the tone for the church. Jesus determines right and wrong in the church. Jesus decides the direction in the church. And yet all too often, you and I treat the church like it belongs to us, like it's our church. And and so we set the tone. We determine what is right and wrong. We decide the direction. And yet that's wrong because the church belongs to us. To Jesus. Now notice what he says. First of all, he tells us that he is God in the flesh, and as such, he has all authority. That's what the phrase Son of God reveals. You see, Jesus is not just a picture of God. Jesus is not a type of God. Jesus is God in the flesh. Jesus is the creator of all things. He is the ruler of all people, and as such, he has all authority. We must always remember that Jesus does not answer to us. We answer to him. And the fact of the matter is, we don't even have a vote. He has all authority, period. And one day, as Son of God, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. So he's God in the flesh. He has all authority. Next, we discover that he has all knowledge. And nothing is hidden from him. He tells us that his eyes are like blazing fire. And then he tells us later on in this letter that he is the one who searches the hearts and minds. Jesus knows not only what we do. Jesus knows what we think. He even knows the motivation behind what we do and think. Nothing is hidden from Jesus. His eyes are are like a blowtorch. They they cut through all the layers of us and they see everything about us. Jesus audits our, our attitudes. He evaluates our motives. He weighs our ambition. He observes our thoughts. Everything is laid bare before him. Nothing is hidden. Now, to be honest, that both frightens and encourages me. It frightens me because I realize there are times that my actions, much less my thoughts and motivations, are not what they need to be. And yet Jesus knows and sees everything about me. Nothing is hidden from him. He knows what I am thinking when I am frustrated. He knows what motivates me when I do certain things. And and like you... Sometimes my thoughts are not what they need to be and my motivation is not pure. But it's also encouraging to me. It's encouraging to me because the Bible says that even though he knows me inside out, he loves me unconditionally. And it's also encouraging to me because he knows my needs even before I ask them. 
So Jesus knows everything. And then finally, we see that he has all power. And one day, he will render the final judgment. That's what he's revealing when he says that his feet are like burnished bronze. In verse 23, it says that he will repay everyone according to their deeds. Now listen to me. Whoever you are and wherever you may be on your spiritual journey, you need to understand that Jesus is worthy of your praise. He is worthy of your worship. He is worthy of your life. So we begin with Jesus. But then he moves on and he encourages the church by by sharing with them six positive traits. Now let me just quickly give these to you. First of all, he says that they are hardworking. The the word deed comes from the Greek word ergon, which is the word we get our word ergometer from, which is an instrument used to, to measure the work performed by a group of muscles. And so what this is saying is this church worked hard. It wasn't a church filled with lazy slackers who were just sitting in the chairs wanting everybody else to do the work. No, this was a church where the people were willing to step up to the plate and volunteer and work. But they were also loving. Of the seven churches, this is the only one that singled out for their love. And so obviously their love was a cut above the rest. They were full of faith. Remember, without faith, it is impossible to please Jesus. And and he wants us to have faith enough to step out of the boat and trust him, even when it means stepping into the storms of life. But let me remind you that it's not faith in and of itself that needs to be praised. It is faith in Jesus. Because people can have faith in a variety of things, a variety of people. So they were full of faith. And then they were a serving church. That word serve comes from the Greek word diakone, which is the word we get our word deacon from. So, so they served people. They served their community. When, when I think about this, I think about our mission Columbia. I, I think about food from the heart. I think about Operation Christmas Child, which we are involved in right now. And I think about the various ministries where we're trying to serve our community. I think about life groups that volunteer to help people move and, and, and serve it. At Delta Motel and, and various things like that. They were a serving church. And they were a persevering church. They, they did not give up. In the midst of struggles, in the midst of hardships, in, in the midst of suffering, they kept on keeping on. But finally, they were improving church. The Bible says that what they were doing now was better than what they did before. They kept on moving forward. You see, they realized that if you fail to continue to move forward, you're going to drift backwards. And so they were always trying to improve. They were always trying to grow. But after complimenting this church, Jesus gave them one serious complaint. And it's a big one. He said they were tolerant. Jesus said the church at Thyatira was tolerant and he was not pleased. He said, you tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess. And don't understand, Jezebel was probably not her real name. Jezebel is kind of like Judas or Benedict Arnold. You know, those are names that are infamous to us. They represent something. And the name Jezebel would have represented something to these people. 
She was the most infamous person, or at least woman, in Old Testament history. She lived during the days of the prophet Elijah, and she was the daughter of the king of Sidon, and and Ahab, the king of Israel, fell in love with her and married her. And when Jezebel moved into the the, um, palace, she moved in her idols, and she moved in her false prophets. And as she moved in her idolatry, she led the nation of Israel into idolatry. She literally went on a campaign to try to kill all of the true prophets of God. You'll recall that Elijah fought against 850 prophets of Baal and Asherah, and yet when Jezebel tried to kill him, he ran in terror from her. She was evidently a very powerful, very persuasive woman, And Jesus said that you've got a Jezebel in your church that calls herself a prophetess. She was evidently very persuasive. She was evidently very powerful. And and evidently she had gained control of the church. And the majority of the people were no longer following the God-appointed pastor of the church who was leading them in the word of God. They were following this self-appointed prophetess, Jezebel, who the Bible says was leading them into immorality and idolatry. You see, the problem that began in Pergamum with them compromising had taken root in Thyatira, and now they were tolerating this, where a few people were embracing these false teachings in Pergamum. The majority of the church we're now embracing these views in Thyatira. Now, let me tell you what this was teaching. What they were teaching was that our freedom in Christ, the grace of God, allows us to live in sin in the world. And so, because of God's grace, we're saved by grace through faith, not of works, We are allowed to live in sin because God's grace will always abound. And as you read the New Testament, you discover the writers of the New Testament addressing this over and over and over again. Because the early church was misunderstanding the grace of God. In Romans chapter 6, the apostle Paul said, what shall we say? Shall we go on sinning that grace may abound? By no means. We have died to sin. How can we live any longer? The apostle Peter said in 2 Peter chapter 2, For they mouth empty boastful words, and by appealing to the lustful desires of sinful nature, they entice people who are just escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom while they themselves are slaves of depravity. For a man is a slave to whatever masters him. And Jude, who is the half-brother of Jesus, said it this way. He said, for certain men whose condemnation was written about long ago, has secretly slipped in among you. They are godless men who change the grace of our God into a license for immorality, and they deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. Did you hear that? Throughout the New Testament, as the church was established and growing, 
This was an ever-present problem. There were some who came into the church and said, because we are saved by grace, we can continue in sin. It doesn't matter how we live. And friends, that is a false teaching. Here's what you need to understand. Theological problems are most often moral problems in disguise. Write it down. Theological problems are most often moral problems in disguise. Theological error in many times results in or is the result of moral disobedience. We bend what we believe to suit how we live. For instance, someone comes along and says, you can be a faithful Christian and practice homosexuality. Or you can be a faithful Christian and live a transgender lifestyle. Or you can live a, be a faithful Christian and cohabit with your boyfriend or girlfriend. Because you're saved by grace. And yet the Bible says that if you believe that, if you think that, if you're living that way, you have never understood God's grace to begin with. Understand, we don't change the Word of God. The Word of God changes us. And we need to live that way. So here was this church that began to tolerate sexual sin and pagan worship in their own church. So that leads us to a question. What should we be tolerant of and what should we be intolerant of? Because to be truthful, as we read through the New Testament, we discover that there are things and there are people that we should be tolerant of. And yet there are other times that we should not be tolerant. So let me just kind of walk you through this and you can take some notes. First of all, as Christians, I, I believe we should practice religious tolerance. Now what do I mean by that? What I mean is this. We believe that Muslims, Hindus, Mormons, Buddhists, atheists, Jehovah's Witness, whatever they may be, have a right to believe what they want to believe. Did you hear me? We believe as Christians that everyone has a right to believe what they want to believe. It's not that we agree with what they believe, but we tolerate their freedom to practice their faith or lack thereof. And here's the reason why. Christianity is not a religion that is imposed on others, but it's a relationship that we share with others. We cannot pass a law that changes a human heart. And so if we made Christianity the enforced religion of our state, we may have a number of people that now call themselves Christians, but their hearts will never be changed. And we recognize that. We personally believe as Christians that the gospel and Jesus can stand on their own in a civil debate on truth. And so we tolerate those whose religious beliefs are different than ours. Second, as Christians, we should practice social tolerance in our community. Now, what does that mean? If we have a family member or a coworker or a neighbor that, that holds to a, another lifestyle that does not live like we live, that is not practicing the beliefs that we practice in our society, 
We tolerate them. Though we may disagree with the choices they are making, we tolerate them. I mean, after all, Jesus told us to love our neighbor as ourself. That doesn't mean that we agree with them. It doesn't mean that we have to vote with them on social issues. It doesn't even mean that we have no right to stand up for our biblical convictions. But what it does mean is in the end, we are going to exercise love to them. We are going to minister to them regardless of what they believe and how they live. Jesus was a friend of sinners. Third, we should be tolerant of those within the church that we disagree with, and yet their views do not affect orthodoxy. For instance, the second coming of Jesus. Different believers have different views on that. Some believe that the next great event that will happen will be the rapture of the church. I believe that. Others believe that before the church is ever raptured, the tribulation will begin. I pray that's not true. But, but we disagree on those things. We disagree on spiritual gifts. Some believe that, that the gift of tongues and healing and other gifts have ceased in our day and age. Others believe that those gifts are still prevalent and relevant in our day and age. And we exercise grace. There are some that hold to a strict view of Reformed theology, which I do not hold to. And yet we exercise grace because all of those things are within the realm of orthodoxy. All of those can be held to within the parameters of God's Word. And so when it comes to these beliefs that that do not affect orthodoxy, we are tolerant. But there are two things that we are not tolerant of. First of all, as a church, we cannot be tolerant within the church of heretical views. If a view goes against the clear teaching of the Word of God and what the church has held to historically for over 2,000 years, we cannot tolerate that. Now, now what are those views? Well, let me give you a few. The Bible is the Word of God, period. Jesus is God in the flesh, period. Jesus was born of a virgin, period. Jesus died on the cross for the sins of the world, period. Jesus rose from the grave, period. Jesus is coming again, period. We cannot vacillate on those views. Someone said it this way. There are certain beliefs that are national borders, and there are other beliefs that are state borders. For those beliefs that are national borders, we will defend our borders, But those beliefs that are state borders, though we may disagree, we allow free trade and free travel across those borders. So as a church, we cannot tolerate heretical views. And so if someone in our life group starts teaching views that are heretical, we will confront those and those people will be disciplined by our church. We have to. Or we will be guilty like the church in Thyatira. And then secondly... We must confront views where moral living is different from the biblical standard. Here it specifically deals with sexual immorality. The church was embracing this. 
you're free to live however you want because this is what our culture does and this is what our society does. And, and yet Jesus said, oh, no, you don't. You must repent and turn from this. And so there are things that we tolerate because of the grace of God and the love of God. And there are things that we cannot tolerate. And that leads me to the final thing that we see in this passage. And, and that is two possible results of our choices. And so here was this church that was tolerant of this Jezebel who called herself a prophetess who was leading the church into idolatry and immorality. And to this church, Jesus gave them two choices. Now, I don't want you to miss what he says in verse 21. This is important. Hope your Bible is still open. Look at verse 21. Jesus said, I gave her time to repent, but she refused. What's important for you to understand is even this Jezebel was given an opportunity to repent. God always wants us to repent. God always wants us to experience his forgiveness and his mercy and his grace and his salvation. In 2 Peter 3, Peter said, God does not want anyone to be destroyed. He wants everyone to repent. Later on in that same chapter, it says, remember our Lord's patience gives people time to be saved. I want you to listen. God doesn't want to judge you. God wants to save you so that you can experience his love. But if you refuse to repent, if you reject his love, then he will judge you and he will discipline you. Understand, unrepentant sin always leads to judgment it always leads to discipline. Notice what it says here. This Jezebel had been messing around in the bedroom. And so Jesus said, I'm going to put you in a hospital room that is full of suffering. Now, is this symbolic? Is this literal? Did Jesus strike her with a physical illness? Or was this a picture of what was going to happen to her, we do not know. But what we do know is that it is clear Jesus judges sin. Sin always has consequences. What a man sows, he will reap. And you need to understand that. Now notice what Jesus said after that. He said, I will strike her children dead. Now, this most likely isn't speaking of her physical children, but it's speaking of those who are following her teachings. He said, it's not only her that's going to experience my judgment and my discipline. It's everyone who have bought into her teachings and who are following her lifestyle. Some of you may say, well, I was just listening to what that teacher said on TV, and, and he said it was okay Jesus says, I, I don't care what that teacher says. You are responsible for your actions. 
And one day you will be judged by God. And then notice what Jesus said. He said, all the churches will know who searches hearts and minds. And I will repay each according to his deeds. What is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying this Jezebel who has led the church astray and those who have followed her are going to come under the clear judgment of God to the point that all of the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds. That I am he who repays everyone for what he does. Now, some of you may be saying, well, why doesn't God do that today? And my question to you, look at me, is do you really want him to? And my second question is this. Are you sure he's not? Are you sure he's not? Because we know that God gives us an opportunity to repent. How do we know that God's judgment on us is not just a second away, a day away, a heartbeat away? You live in your sin, you live in your idolatry, and, and you think that God is turning a blind eye to how you're living. Understand, God sees and knows all. And no one gets away with sin. And in his timing, and in his way, he will deal with sin. But then Jesus addresses those who overcomes. And he gives two promises. He he promises his power and he promises his presence. He says, one day you'll have authority over the nations. Now, now this is referring to how we as believers will rule and reign with Jesus in, in the millennial reign. We will one day rule with Jesus. And, and though there are disagreements on this, I believe the Bible is crystal clear that there are different What's the word I want to use? There are different roles and responsibilities that we will have in heaven based on our faithfulness here on this earth. Everyone's not going to do the same thing in heaven. Everyone's not going to do the same thing in the millennial reign. What we do then will be determined by our faithfulness now. And Jesus is saying, for you who do not bend your knee, who do not follow this false teaching, you're going to rule with me. And then he says, I will give you the morning star. Now in Revelation 22, we discover that Jesus is the morning star. And so what is he saying? He's saying, I am going to give you myself. So where are you? Where does this leave us? Well, let me just tell you where it leaves me. It leaves me looking at my present faithfulness. God, am I being faithful to you in such a way so that when I stand before you, I'm going to receive that privilege, that honor of ruling with you. I'm going to experience your presence in a very personal, very real way. But it not only causes me to look at my present faithfulness and examine whether I'm living the way that I need to live as a follower of Jesus. It also causes me to long 
for that day. Because I got to tell you, this world is getting worse and worse. And the older I get and the longer I live, the more I long for his return. And that's how we should live as believers. We should live constantly looking at, evaluating our faithfulness. Are we living in a way that is honoring to the Christ who gave his all for us? And then second, are our priorities in order in such a way that we are longing for his soon return? And then as we close, let me remind you. He is addressing the overcomers. And who are the overcomers? 1 John 5, verse 5. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. The overcomers are those who have a saving faith. Not, not an intellectual faith. Not a knowledge faith. But a life-changing faith. Who in the marketplace, who in a world that, that says, if you proclaim this, you will die. Those people, those people who are so in love with Jesus, who are so committed to him that they're saying, I am willing to die, saying he's the son of God, not Caesar. Do you have that kind of faith? That's the kind of faith we're called to have. I want you to bow your head. I want you to close your eyes. With every head bowed, with every eye closed this morning, here's the most important thing I can ask you. Are you an overcomer? Do you have that overcoming faith, the faith that has changed your life, the faith that has caused you to hold true to the Word of God, the faith that has caused you to desire to live a a life free from sin, a a life that, that longs for holiness and righteousness? Have you experienced that kind of life changing relationship with Jesus? If you haven't, And the Spirit of God is speaking to your heart this morning, letting you know that's what you need. Then I want to encourage you today to humble yourself before Him. Accept His grace and give your life to Him. You can pray this prayer if that's the desire of your heart. Dear Jesus, I come to you this morning humbly asking you to forgive me. I'm a sinner. I'm a rebel. I'm tired of living that way. I want to give my life to you. The one who created me. The one who redeemed me. The one who has a plan for me. Forgive me for all my sins. I believe you died. You rose from the grave to save me and set me free. I'm giving my life to you. Take control. Thank you for hearing me. Thank you for saving me. Amen.